Chapter One of Dodo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Dodo: A Detail of the Day by E. F. Benson. And far out, drifting helplessly on that grey, angry sea, I saw a small boat at the mercy of the winds and waves, and my guide said to me. Some call the sea falsehood, and that both truth, and others call the sea truth, and the boat falsehood, and for my part, I think that one is right as the other. The Professor of Ignorance Chapter 1 Poets of all ages and of all denominations are unanimous in assuring us that there was once a period on this grey earth known as the Golden Age. These irresponsible hearts describe it in terms of the vaguest, most poetic splendour, and, apart from the fact, upon which they are all agreed, that the weather was always perfectly charming, we have to reconstruct its characteristics in the main for ourselves. Perhaps, if the weather was uniformly delightful, even in this nineteenth century, the golden age might return again. We all know how perceptibly our physical, mental, and spiritual level is raised by a few days of really charming weather. But until the weather determines to be always golden, we can hardly expect it of the age. Yet even now, even in England, and even in London, we have every year a few days which must surely be waves and strays from the golden age days which have fluttered down from under the hands of the recording angel as he tied up his reports and after floating about for years in dim interplanetary space sometimes dropped down upon us they may last a week they have been known to last a fortnight again they may curtail themselves into a few hours but they are never wholly absent at the time at which this story opens, London was having its annual golden days, days to be associated with cool early rides in the crumbly row, with sitting on small green chairs beneath the trees at the corner of the park, with a general disinclination to exert oneself, or to stop smoking cigarettes, with a temper distinctly above its normal level, and a corresponding absence of moods. The crudeness of spring had disappeared, but not its freshness. The warmth of the summer had come, but not its sultriness. The winter was definitely over and past, and even in Hyde Park the voice of the singing bird was heard, and an old gentleman, who shall be nameless, had committed his annual perjury by asserting in the morning post that he had heard a nightingale in the elm trees by the ladies' mile, which was manifestly impossible. The sky was blue. The trees, strange to say, were green, for the leaves were out, and even the powers of soot which hover round London had not yet had time to shed their blackening dew upon them. The season was in full swing, but nobody was tired of it yet, and all London evinced a tendency to modified rural habits, which expressed themselves in the way of driving down to Hurlingham and giving water parties at Richmond. To state this more shortly, it was a balmy, breezy day towards the middle of June. The shady walks that lined the side of the row were full of the usual crowds of leisurely, well-dressed people who constitute what is known as London, 
Anyone acquainted with that august and splendid body would have seen at once that something had happened. Not a famine in China, nor a railway accident, nor a revolution, nor a war, but emphatically something. Conversation was a thing that made time pass, not a way of passing the time. Obviously, the larger half of London was asking questions, and the smaller half was enjoying its superiority in being able to give answers. These indications are as clear to the practised eye as the signs of the weather appear to be to the prophet Zadkiel. To the amateur, one cloud looks much like another cloud. The prophet, on the other hand, lays a professional finger on one and says, Thunder! while the lurid bastion, which seems fraught with fire and tempest to the amateur, is dismissed with the wave of a contemptuous hand. A tall young man was slowly making his way across the road from the arch. He was a fair specimen of the exhausted seedlings of our effete aristocracy. Long-limbed, clean-shaven, about six feet too high, and altogether very pleasant to look upon. He wore an air of extreme leisure, and freedom from the smallest touch of care or anxiety, and it was quite clear that such was his normal atmosphere. He waited with serene patience for a large number of well-appointed carriages to go past, and then found himself blocked by another stream, going in the opposite direction. However, all things come to an end, even the impossibility of crossing from the arch at the entrance of the park to the trees on a fine morning in June and on this particular morning I have to record no exception to the rule. A horse bolting onto the road narrowly missed knocking him down, and he looked up with mild reproach at its rider, as he disappeared in a shower of dust and soft earth. This young gentleman, who has been making his slow and somewhat graceful entrance onto our stage, was emphatically London, and he too saw at once that something had happened. He looked about for an acquaintance, and then dropped in a leisurely manner into a chair by his side. "'Morning, Bertie,' he remarked. "'What's up?' Bertie was not going to be hurried. He finished lighting a cigarette, and adjusted the tip neatly with his fingers. "'She's going to be married,' he remarked. Jack Broxton turned half round to him with a quicker movement than he had hitherto shown. "'Not Dodo?' he said. Yes. Jack gave a low whistle. It isn't to you, I suppose. Bertie Arbuthnot leaned back in his chair with extreme languor. His enemies, who, to do him justice, were very few, said that if he hadn't been the tallest man in London, he would never have been there at all. No, it isn't to me. Is she here? said Jack, looking round. No, I think not. At least, I haven't seen her. Well, I'm... Jack did not finish the sentence. Then, as an afterthought, he inquired, Whom to? Chesterford, returned the other. Jack made a neat little hole with the ferrule of his stick in the gravel in front of him, and performed a small burial service for the end of his cigarette. The action was slightly allegorical. He's my first cousin, he said. However, I may be excused for not feeling distinctly sympathetic with my first cousin. Must I congratulate him? That's as you like, said the other. I really don't see why you shouldn't. 
but it is rather overwhelming isn't it you know dodo is awfully charming but she hasn't got any of the domestic virtues besides she ought to be an empress he added loyally i suppose a marchioness is something said jack but i didn't expect it one little bit of course he is hopelessly in love and so dodo has decided to make him happy it seems so said bertie with a fine determination not to draw inferences ah but don't you see said jack oh it's all right said bertie he's devoted to her and she is clever and stimulating personally i shouldn't like a stimulating wife i don't like stimulating people i don't think they wear well it would be like sipping brandy all day fancy having brandy at five o'clock tea what a prospect you know dodo's too smart for my taste she never bores one said jack no but she makes me feel as if i was sitting under a flaming gas burner which was beating on to what nature designed to be my brain cover nonsense said jack you don't know her there she is ah a dog-cart had stopped close by them and a girl got out leaving a particularly diminutive groom at the pony's head if anything she was a shade more perfectly dressed than the rest of the crowd and she seemed to know it behind her walked another girl who was obviously intended to walk behind while dodo was equally obviously made to walk in front just then dodo turned round and said over her shoulder to her maud tell the boy he needn't wait you needn't either unless you like maud turned round and went dutifully back to the dog-cart where she stood irresolutely a few moments after giving her message dodo caught sight of the two young men on the chairs and advanced to them the radiant vision was evidently not gifted with that dubious quality shyness why jack she exclaimed in a loudish voice here i am you see and i've come to be congratulated what are you and bertie sitting here for like two patiences on monuments really jack you would make a good patience on a monument was patience a man i never saw him yet i would come and sketch you if you stood still enough what are you so glum about you look as if you're going to be executed i ought to look like that much more than you jack i'm going to be a married woman and stop at home and mend the socks and look after the baby and warm chesterford's slippers for him where's chesterford have you seen him oh i told maud to go away maud she called come back and take bertie for a stroll i want to talk to jack go on bertie you can come back in half an hour and if i haven't finished talking then you can go away again or go for a drive if you like with maud round the park take care of that pony though he's got the devil of a temper i suppose i may congratulate you first asked bertie that's so dear of you said dodo graciously as if she was used to saying it good-bye maud's waiting and the pony will kick himself to bits if he stands much longer thanks for your congratulations good-bye bertie moved off and dodo sat down next jack now jack we're going to have a talk in the first place you haven't congratulated me never mind we'll take that as done now tell me what you think of it i don't quite know why i ask you but we are old friends i'm surprised said he candidly i think it's very odd dodo frowned john broxton she said solemnly 
Don't be nasty. Don't you think I'm a very charming girl, and don't you think he's a very charming boy? Jack was silent for a minute or two. Then he said, What's the use of this, Dodo? What do you want me to say? I want you to say what you think. Jack, old boy, I'm very fond of you, though I couldn't marry you. Oh, you must see that. We shouldn't have suited. We neither of us will consent to play second fiddle, you know. Then, of course, there's the question of money. I must have lots of money. Yes, a big must, and a big lot. It's not your fault that you haven't got any, and it wouldn't have been your fault if you'd been born with no nose. But I couldn't marry a man who was without either. After all, Dodo, said he, you only say what everyone else thinks about that. I don't blame you for it. About the other, you're wrong. I'm sure I should not have been an exacting husband. You could have had your own way pretty well. Oh, Jack, indeed no, said she. We're wandering from the point, but I'll come back to it presently. My husband must be so devoted to me that anything I do will seem good and charming. You don't answer that requirement, as I've told you before. If I can't get that, I have got it, by the way, I must have a man who doesn't care what I do. You would have cared, you know it. You told me once I was in dreadfully bad form. Of course, that clinched the matter. To my husband, I must never be in bad form. If others did what I do, it might be bad form, but with me, no. Bad form is one of those qualities which my husband must think impossible for me, simply because I am I. Oh, Jack, you must see that. Don't be stupid. And then you aren't rich enough. It's all very well to call it a worldly view, but it's a perfectly true one for me. Don't you see? I must have everything I want. It is what I live on, all this, she said, spreading her hands out. All these people must know who I am, and that they should do that, I must have everything at my command. Oh, it's all very well to talk of love in a cottage, but just wait till the chimney begins to smoke. Dodo nodded her head with an air of profound wisdom. It isn't for you that I'm anxious, said Jack. It's for Chesterford. He's an awfully good fellow. It's a trifle original to sing the husband's praise to the wife, but I do want you to know that. And he isn't one of those people who don't feel things because they don't show it. It is just the other way. The feeling is so deep that he can't. You know you like to turn yourself inside out for your friend's benefit, but he doesn't do that. And he is in love with you. Yes, I know, she said. But you do me injustice. I shall be very good to him. I can't pretend that I am what is known as being in love with him. In fact, I don't think I know what that means except that people get in a very ridiculous state and write sonnets to their mistress's front teeth. Which reminds me that I'm going to the dentist tomorrow. Come and hold my hand, yes, and keep withered flowers and that sort of thing. Ah, Jack, I wish that I really knew what it did mean. It can't be all nonsense, because Chesterford's like that, and he is an honest man, if you like. And I do respect and admire him very much, and I hope I shall make him happy. And I hear he's got a delightful new yacht, and, oh, do look at that Arbuthnot girl opposite with a magenta hat. It seems to me inconceivably stupid to have a magenta hat. Really, she's a fool. She wants to attract attention, but she attracts the wrong sort. Now she is in bad form. Bertie doesn't look after his relations enough. Oh, bother the Arbuthnot girl, said Jack angrily. I want to have this out with you. Don't you see that that sort of thing won't do with Chesterford? 
He's not a fool by any means, and he knows the difference between the two things. Indeed he doesn't, said Dodo. The other day he was talking to me, and I simply kept on smiling when I was thinking of something quite different, and he thought I was adorably sympathetic. And besides, I am not a fool either. He is far too happy for me to believe that he is not satisfied. Well, but you'll have to keep it up, said Jack. Don't you see I'm not objecting to your theory of marriage in itself, though I think it's disgusting, but it strikes me that you have got the wrong sort of man to experiment upon. It might do very well if he was like you. Jack, you shan't lecture me, said Dodo. I shall do precisely as I like. Have you ever known me make a fool of myself? Of course you haven't. Well, if I was going to make a mess of this, it would be contrary to all you or anyone else knows of me. I'm sorry I asked your opinion at all. I didn't think you would be so stupid. You told me to tell you what I thought, said Jack in self-defense. I offered to say what you wanted, or to congratulate or condole or anything else. It's your own fault, and I wish I'd said it was charming and delightful, and just what I'd always hoped. Dodo laughed. I like to see you cross, Jack, she remarked. And now we'll be friends again. Remember what you've said today. We shall see in time who is right, you or I. If you like to bet about it, you may. Only you would lose. I promise to tell you if you turn out to be right, even if you don't see it, which you must if it happens. Which it won't, so you won't, she added, with a fine disregard of grammar. Jack was silent. Jack, you're horrible, said Dodo impatiently. You don't believe in me one bit. I believe you're jealous of Chesterford. You needn't be. Then he interrupted her quickly. Ah, Dodo, take care what you say. When you say, I needn't be, it implies that you're not going to do your share. I want to be jealous of Chesterford, and I'm sorry I'm not. If I thought you loved him, or would ever get to love him, I should be jealous. I wish to goodness I was. Really, if you come to think of it, I'm very generous. I want this to be entirely a success. If there is one man in the world who deserves to be happy, it is Chesterford. He is not brilliant, but he does not even think he is, which is the best substitute. It doesn't much matter how hard you are hit, if you are well protected. Try to make him conceited. It is the best you can do for him. He said these words in a low tone, as if he hardly wished Dodo to hear. But Dodo did hear. "'You don't believe in me a bit,' she said. "'Never mind.' I'll force you to. That's always the way. As long as I amuse you, you like me well enough, but you distrust me at bottom. A woman's a ball when she's serious. Isn't it so? Because I talk nonsense, you think I'm entirely untrustworthy about things that matter. Dodo struck the ground angrily with the point of her parasol. I've thought about it. I know I'm right, she went on. I shall be immensely happy as his wife, and he will be immensely happy as my husband. I don't think it's much use discussing it, said he. But don't be vexed with me, Dodo. You reminded me that we were old friends at the beginning of this extremely candid conversation. I have told you that I think it is a mistake. If he didn't love you, it wouldn't matter. Unfortunately, he does. Well, Jack, she said, I can't prove it but you ought to know me well enough by this time not to misjudge me so badly. It is not only unjust, but stupid, 
and you're not usually stupid. However, I'm not angry with you, which is the result of my beautiful nature. Come, Jack, shake hands and wish me happiness. She stood up, holding out both her hands to him. Jack was rather moved. Dodo, of course I do. I wish all the best wishes that my nature can desire and my brain conceive, both to you and him, him too, and I hope I shall be outrageously jealous before many months are over. He shook her hands and then dropped them. She stood for a moment with her eyes on the ground, looking still grave. Then she retreated a step or two, leaned against the rail, and broke into a laugh. "'That's right, Jack. Be gone, dull care. I suppose you'll be Chesterford's best man. I shall tell him you must be. Really, he's an excellent lover. He doesn't say too much or too little, and he lets me do exactly as I like. Jack, come and see us this evening.' We're having a sort of Barnum show, and I'm to be the white elephant. Come and be a white elephant, too. Oh, no, you can't. Chesterford's the other. The elephant is an amiable beast, and I'm going to be remarkably amiable. Come to dinner first. The show begins afterwards. No, on the whole, don't come to dinner, because I want to talk to Chesterford all the time, and do my duty in that state of life in which it has pleased Chesterford to ask me to play my part. That's profane, but it's only out of the catechism. Who wrote the catechism? I always regard the catechism as only a half-sacred work, and so profanity doesn't count. At least you may make two profane remarks out of the catechism, which will only count as one. I shall sing too. Evelyn has taught me two little nigger minstrel songs. Shall I black my face? I'm not at all sure that I shouldn't look rather well with my face blacked, though I suppose it would frighten Chesterford. Here are Maud and Bertie back again. I must go. I'm lunching somewhere. I can't remember where. Only Maud will know. Maud, where are we lunching? Have you had a nice drive? And has Bertie been making love to you? Goodbye, Jack. Remember to come this evening. You can come too, Bertie, if you like. I've had a very nice talk with Jack, and he's been remarkably rude. But I forgive him. Jack went with her to her dog-cart and helped her in. This pony's name is Beelzebub, she remarked, as she took the reins. Because he's the prince of the other things. Goodbye. Then he went back and rejoined Bertie. "'There was a scene last night,' said Bertie. "'Maud told me about it. She came home with Dodo and Chesterford and stopped to open a letter in the hall, and when she went upstairs into the drawing-room she found Dodo sobbing among the sofa cushions and Chesterford standing by, not quite knowing what to do. It appeared that he had just given her the engagement ring.' She was awfully pleased with it, and said it was charming. Then suddenly she threw it down on the floor, and buried her face in the cushions. After that she rushed out of the room, and didn't appear again for a quarter of an hour, and then went to the foreign office party, and to two balls. Jack laughed hopelessly for a few minutes. Then he said, "'It's too ridiculous. I don't believe it can be all real. That was drama.' pure spontaneous drama, but it's drama for all that. I'm sure I don't know why I laughed, now I come to think of it. It really is no laughing matter. All the same, I wonder why she didn't tell me that. But her sister has got no business to repeat those kind of things. Don't tell anyone else, Bertie. Then, after a minute, he repeated to himself, I wonder why she didn't tell me that. Jack, said Bertie, after another pause, 
I don't wish you to think that I want to meddle in your concerns, and so don't tell me unless you like. But was anything ever up between you and Dodo? Lie freely, if you would rather not tell me, please. Yes, he said simply. I asked her to marry me last April, and she said no. I haven't told anyone till this minute, because I don't like it to be known when I fail. I am like Dodo in that. You know how she detests not being able to do anything she wants? It doesn't often happen, but when it does, Dodo becomes damnable. She has more perseverance than I have, though. When she can't get anything, she makes such a fuss that she usually does succeed eventually. But I do just the other thing. I go away, and don't say anything about it. That was a bad failure. I remember being very much vexed at the time. Jack spoke dreamily, as if he was thinking of something else. It was his way not to blaze abroad anything that affected him deeply. Like Dodo, he would often dissect himself in a superficial manner, and act as a kind of showman to his emotions. But he did not care to turn himself inside out with her thoroughness. And above all, as he had just said, he hated the knowledge of a failure. He tried to conceal it, even from himself. He loved to show his brighter side to the world. When he was in society, he always put on his best mental and moral clothes, those that were newest, and fitted him most becomingly. The rags and tatters were thrown deep into the darkest cupboard, and the key sternly turned on them. Now and then, however, as on this occasion, a friend brought him the key with somewhat embarrassing openness, and menace prevented him from putting his back to the door. But when it was unlocked, he adopted the tone of, "'Yes, there are some old things in there, I believe.' "'May you see? Oh, certainly. But please shut it after you, and don't let anyone else in. I quite forget what is in there myself. It's so long since I looked.' But he was silent. He was on those terms of intimacy with the other that do not need ordinary words of condolence or congratulation. Besides, from his own point of view, he inwardly congratulated Jack, and this was not the sort of occasion on which to tell him that congratulation, rather than sympathy, was what the event demanded. Then Jack went on, still with the air of a spectator, rather than of a principal character. Dodo talked to me a good deal about her marriage. I am sorry about it, for I think that Chesterford will be terribly disillusioned. You know, he doesn't take things lightly, and he is much too hopelessly fond of Dodo ever to be content with what she will grant him as a wife. But we cannot do anything. I told her what I thought, not because I hoped to make any change in the matter, but because I wished her to know that for once in her life she has made a failure, a bad, hopeless mistake. That has been my revenge. Come, it's after one, I must go home. I shall go there this evening. Shall I see you? End of chapter one